We've come to the end of the second movement, the end of Acts. Well, no, we're in Romans. The ends of Act 2 in a four-act story that is this letter to a beautiful, wonderful, needy little church in Rome, just like us, penned by a man of flesh and blood who puts his trust in the risen Christ, the Apostle Paul. And he has been leading us here now for eight chapters to this triumphant, climactic end to the gospel according to Romans. So Paul asks, what shall we say to these things? Now, these things, he's he's pointing us back a few verses, verses that we read last week and this week. 28 through 30. He's pointing us back to Romans 8.1 also. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All of chapter 8. But really, Paul is pointing us back to chapter 1. He is finishing now and concluding a rational, logical, and watertight argument he's been making for eight chapters. Remember his introduction in Romans 1. He says to the saints in Rome... Those being made holy in Christ, you are loved by God and you are called. You are loved and you are called into a gospel, a good news. Not anything you do, but something you receive by faith alone. A proclamation that the King has come. Messiah is here. God's promised child has come to rescue God's lost children. And Paul tells us that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because in this good news, this power made perfect in weakness, this upside down kingdom where you don't earn it, but instead receive it. In this good news, the righteousness, that is the covenant justice of God, is revealed. Now these Christians live in a pretty unjust place. Famine and sword and nakedness would have been common them, persecuted. And I don't mean nakedness like, oh, I accidentally stumbled upon a weird hippie hot spring on my hike in the Hamas. That's the kind that we're used to. I mean, torn asunder for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew it well. And Paul says, there's no shame in this gospel. Even if your clothes are torn from your body and you're put to death in the arena, there's no shame because this was God's plan to justify sinners, to put us in the place and the standing of righteousness, and even to bring His justice to bear on the whole earth. Through the one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the great rescue plan of God has begun. And He will now begin to call for Himself people, men and women and children from every tribe, not just the Jews, from every tongue, not just Hebrew. From every nation, all over the world, the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth has broken in. And Paul has laid this out in a way that is deeply personal to us. Are you afraid of being condemned? There is no condemnation. Are you worried about being abandoned because God sees you? Not just just church you, but the you that struggles 
and has ups and downs throughout the week? Are, are you worried about being abandoned or forsaken? No. The spirit of adoption is upon you. You're a son and a daughter of God. And so he leads us to this point where he answers all of our questions, all of our fears, all of our needs, omnibus, in one foul swoop. And the main point of the text, the zenith of Paul's argument is this, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. I know we've, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard this before. But I want to just encourage us to think about our needs and hear it again. If you're young in the faith, maybe you've recently come to the Lord to see that the things of this world do not satisfy. There has to be something more. And I want to remind you that this isn't just the ABCs of the Christian life. Like, okay, you know, I, I get this down, I get the gospel down, nothing can separate me from the love of God, and then... I graduate. And then I graduate and I mature into, you know, the, the deeper stuff. No, it's, it's the gospel all the way down. This truth, this main point of Paul's isn't the ABCs of the Christian life. It's A to Z. All of the height and depth and width of exploring what it means to be known and loved by God, to be transformed and made holy, to love and serve and know our neighbors. It all centers and revolves around this singular truth. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. I don't know how you got here, but I'm so glad you're here. Maybe somebody drugged you here. I've been there back in the day. I'm so glad you're here if you're seeking and you're searching because the church is not a, a country club of made-up mannequins who walk around in our special church outfits pretending that we have it all together. But the church is a courageous community where we do and believe these things, not only for ourselves, but for other people. For the people that annoy us and frustrate us. For hatchets that need to be buried. And so I want us to think this morning about what this means for you. That there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Paul's emphatic, no. There is, but, but what, no. But maybe if I, no. But there was this one, no. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Now, if you've been staying with us in Romans 8, it almost feels like Paul's beating a dead horse. And actually, he is, because it's so important that we not only hear, but also remember and then internalize these things. Why? Perhaps we could ask the question in this way. And I love it, because this question applies to all of us. Age, stage, the whole deal. What, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Could be little things, right? Like in my house, we don't do spiders very well. We don't do spiders. I, I'm, I got a house of... Three beautiful girls. We don't do spiders well at all. In fact, I've seen some pretty incredible like balancing acts on things that are not meant to hold a human's weight because a spider is present. And for me, I mean, centipedes, those things are gnarly. I do not like those. I love New Mexico. I do not like those. 
And, but maybe it's big stuff. I mean, that's, come on, whatever. Perhaps you're here today and you made the unfortunate decision of watching the news this morning before you came in. And, and you're just aware of what's going on in the world. That, you know, one scholar recently said that, that now because of our hyper, not over, hyper exposure to all the news everywhere all at once and all the bad stuff immediately. Basically, most people in 2019 are living in a constant low-grade state of anxiety. Just living in a constant low-grade state of feeling separated from the power and presence and promises of God because guess what? Look at everything that's going on. And we can't turn it off. The finger scrolls, the dopamine releases. So what are you afraid of? Maybe it's something going on in your own heart right now. Maybe it's a relationship that you're in that's challenging. Maybe it's difficulty with children or grandchildren. Maybe it's loss or grief. Maybe it's the brokenness of a marriage. Maybe it's old wounds which still sneak up from time to time and haunt you. What are you afraid of? Because the truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God is God's promise that He is wanting to meet you right there. He is wanting to meet you right there. And that's why Romans 8 is all about comfort in the Holy Spirit and our assurance, assurance as believers that if we are in Christ, we are not only free, we are not only free, but we can have peace and rest. So hear this. What are you afraid of? In the same breath, you are secure. You are secure. Yes, the, the nations rage. There are challenges within and without. You are in Christ secure. And, and Paul is going to prove this to us in our text uh, across four rhetorical questions that he asks and promptly answers. Classic preacher. The, the text follows four questions. And, and as the text itself crescendos, the questions go from the specifics of justification and the law and charges and condemnation all the way up to the, the beauty of this truth. What if I'm just afraid of everything? It's this great Charlie Brown comic where Charlie and Lucy are, are talking and she steps into the role of his personal psychologist and what are you afraid of? This, 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 and I don't know, I don't know. I, finally he says, I think I'm afraid of everything. She goes, up, oh, I've got it. I've hit the nail on the head. You are diagnosed with pantophobia. Pantophobia, what's that mean? She said, it means you're afraid of everything. And I think that's how some of us tend to live. There's hope for us in that too. So, four questions. That's how Paul frames this text. And I think the first thing that we need to see here, that we need to take seriously is that we do actually have enemies. If you're a Christian, if the Holy Spirit indwells your soul, if you're battling between flesh and spirit to trust Christ and grow in Christ, we do have real enemies. The tough part is we tend to do a few things. We either tend to over-spiritualize it so that everything is an enemy, everything is some sort of spiritual battle, or we completely under-spiritualize it. We put our head in the sand, and, and I don't really believe that kind of stuff anyway. I love Jesus, but I don't, yeah, that's, that's a little too weird. I don't want to go there. And yet, this is one of the reasons 
that I do kind of love Zozobra. I'm not going to lie. Now, I have degrees in philosophy, so if you want to have some sort of like philosophical apologetic about the Christian worldview and the idolatry and all that, please take me out for coffee. I like to talk about that stuff. So you know, I get that whole part of it. But I mean, the reason I love Zozobra is because even our secular friends get this. That we not only have enemies in the world, but they are very real. Misery, gloom, anxiety. Take whatever it is that ails you, write it down on a little piece of paper. Stuff it into a huge paper mache crazy puppet. Shoot off some fireworks. Burn it to the ground. Because there must be a substitute. There must be a sacrifice. There must be something to atone for the reality that we all know. The world is broken. Misery is present. And if we're not careful, gloom is the outcome. We can try to burn the pain away, but ironically, even if you stand on the ashes of burnt pieces of paper, you know, bills and whatever, you wake up the next day and it's still there. So our secular friends know that the problem is real. And we need to take it seriously as well. Paul would have had no problem with this. He was accustomed to persecution. As you know, the norm in the early church was persecution. I think about this so often as I'm driving to to work and to serve here and even walking into church like, wow, we we really have it good. For Paul and, and the early Christians, life and death choices you know, there, there, there just weren't a lot of lukewarm Christians. You either believed in Jesus and your life was on the line, or you didn't. This is just hogwash. So I love, we've, we've got this new class coming up. I'll talk about this at the end of service, but we're going to do a new Sunday morning study on Peter and Paul. It follows this wonderful little movie from the early 80s. Anthony Hopkins plays Paul. It's beautiful. And you watch clips of the movies, and we're going to have the class during the second service. So that's a Sunday morning study that's coming up. But as I watched this movie, one thing that really stuck out to me was just all the the pressure and and the pain and the persecution that Paul and the early Christians faced. So we know what Isaiah 54 says. It's a messianic text. Paul's about to take us back to Isaiah 50 in a minute here. He would have been conscious of this text, even as he's writing this, and Ephesians 6. Isaiah 54 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. We know and believe that that is true. And yet, it also means that there are weapons. Not just that there are weapons, but that they are formed. And not only that they are formed, but formed against you. Have you ever felt that way? I don't know about you guys. Maybe I'm just super weird, which is fine. I fit right in with you people. But I mean, sometimes when I do hear the voices of spiritual attack or when something comes my way, it's, it's oddly specific. It's drudging up something in my past. It's condemning me in my, in my presence, often things that you can't change. It's telling me lies, specific lies, right? We, we, we can't generalize these things because the world, the flesh, and the devil, the three enemies of of us in Christ, I mean, the weapons are formed against you. And that's why when, when you are under attack, these things are oddly, you know, you're not loved. You're not cared for. There's no hope. 
Redemption isn't yours. The world's just going to keep getting worse. And on and on. So we have to be aware of the spiritual battle. And not only do we tend to either over or de-spiritualize the issue, but we can frequently misunderstand it. Again, we turn on the news and what do we see? Issues that we would solve with policy, power, politics, whatever. And yet Paul tells us clearly in Ephesians 6 that our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the heavenly realm. So the enemies are real. You're not just some kind of weirdo. It's not fake. When you hear and feel the spiritual attack, when things happen that don't make sense but drive right at the heart of your place of insecurity, whispering to you, there's no assurance for you in Jesus. God knows what you've done. You know, he, he knows, man. He knows your doubts. He knows all of it. He knows what happened last summer. There's no security for you and him. We hear those things and the enemies are real. And that's why these four answers to these four questions are so profound and personally powerful to us. I was trying to think about this text and consider my own story. Where have I seen and known and tasted the fact that nothing can separate me from God's love. Think back to when I was eight years old. We went to church, Christmas and Easter, and yet I knew that God was real. Think back to when I was 13, just a grungy little skater kid. Not much has changed. And I went on a skateboard road trip with my friend. His father, who had recently lost his oldest son to cancer, shared this beautiful story of hope and the cross, and the resurrection, and I believed. I think about college and high school where I am ashamed to admit to you and to confess that I often try to live with one foot in the world, and she usually had a name, and one foot with the Lord, and God will not be mocked. And so he humbled me greatly, repeatedly, and yet he was faithful in my story. Nothing could separate me from the love of God. I think about the challenges I've gone through in adulthood, Bills and life and busyness and medical challenges in our own home. And yet God has proven himself faithful. I'm still in his story. He is still my father. As of yet, nothing has separated me from the love of God in Christ. And so God's love prevails. Yes, you have enemies, but God's love prevails. And it prevails in these Four ways as Paul answers these four accusations. First of all, can anything be against you? Can anything be against you? And Paul uses a technique here that he's employed on previous occasions. This kind of Greco-Roman rhetorical move of arguing from the lesser to the greater. He says, look, all kinds of things are going to come against you. But he who did not spare his only son... And Paul's point is there's nothing greater than that. Whatever comes against you, there is nothing greater than that. There is no greater thing that God could have done, no greater offering he could have put forth, no greater assurance or promise that he could have made. I really love most of you. Some of you is a deep like. 
But I'm not going to lie, man. If it's my kid or you, sorry, see you in heaven, man. See you in heaven. I mean, if it's my kid or you, it's just, it's absurd that the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect, eternal, Trinitarian love would overflow in this way. That when you are accused and assaulted and things are coming against, and I know, I know for some of you this morning, there's a few of you that you are just hanging on by a thread to these promises that you hear about in the Bible. Can anything come against you? No, because God did not spare his only son. And here Paul, the good Jew, who is showing us that all the good Jewish things of the Old Testament point forward to and are fulfilled in Christ. All the shadows of the law and the sacrificial system and all the promises and covenants are fulfilled in the work of Jesus. Paul leads us to Genesis 22. The Jewish hearers in Rome would have picked up on this immediately because it was precisely in Abraham and Isaac that God did, in mercy, spare Abraham's son. Abraham, as you know, was instructed to walk up the mountain. His son bore the wood on his back and asked his father, where's the sacrifice, dad? And at this point, Abraham's like 630 years old and Isaac's 40, so we know who would have won that jujitsu. But they're all trusting the Lord and out of nowhere, boom, the ram appears. God has spared the only son of Abraham, his promised son, Isaac. And what Paul is saying is, God didn't do that with Jesus. With Jesus, he didn't, he didn't provide any other substitute because Jesus is the only substitute that is worthy to bear the sins of the whole world. And so if anyone, anything, brings a charge against you, our only response is, it is finished. I know your failures. It is finished. I know all your sins. Yeah, God knows them all and many more. But in Christ, he knows none of them. It is finished. And so Jesus is the culmination of the story of the glory of God from Genesis all the way to the end of history that nothing can stand against the children of God. Well, what about any charge? And Paul spent all these chapters now, especially chapter 5, end of 5, 6, and 7, dealing with the law. And I love Paul here because it's almost like he's like, all right, guys, We've talked about the law a lot. The law is good. God is good. The law reflects God's perfect character. We are all lawbreakers, and yet the law is still good. And yet if you are in Christ, if you are saved, then we should seek to obey the law. But it's by grace alone. And it's as if Paul is, is tired of explaining, and so he answers in the original with two words. Can anyone bring any charge against God's children? You lawbreaker. You're too licentious. And Paul answers, God justifies. We don't justify ourselves. Do you hear what good news this is in 2019? We don't have to keep up with the Joneses. We don't have to be better looking. We don't need more success. We don't need to flaunt our degrees or whatever the things are that we stand behind to cope and to hide. 
big words, big muscles, whatever. It is God who justifies. So your behavior, your success, your past, present, and future, we can say to all of those things what we have already sung. No death, nor hell, nor sin, nor law. Because it is God who justifies. Not what you do, but what God has done in Christ. It is through Christ that we have a new status and a new standing forever. I love this quote by Richard Lovelace. He's actually a professor of John's at Gordon-Conwell. And he says it this way. Who can bring any charge? It is God who justifies. Loveless says, we are not saved by the love we exercise, but we are saved by the love we trust. It's not even our subjective feelings about these charges that come our way, because you're going to have good days and bad days. It's the objective, unshakable, immovable love of God in Christ from which there is no separation. Because God justifies. But perhaps there's condemnation because we know that justification happened. It's at a point in time, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. God has justified and put us in a new status. But what about our ongoing struggles? Perhaps someone could condemn us. And it's here that Paul turns us to the beauty of where Christ is now and his authority. I don't want to burst any bubbles too hard this morning, but you do know that there isn't like a little 2.3-inch Jesus living in your heart. You know, like a little, you know, Talladega Nights, tiny, four-pound, eight-ounce, whatever, little tiny Jesus just tucked in there, living in your happy little heart. Now, we use that language, and I don't want to, I don't want to put anyone down. I, I've said that plenty of times. What we mean by that is that the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, has renewed our hearts, regenerated our hearts, given us a new heart, and now indwells us with the power and promises of God. But that's not where Jesus is. Where's Jesus? He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father as king, as priest, as true and forever prophet, and his priestly work means that he is standing there interceding for you day and night. So whenever the devil gets permission, in, like in Job, to come into the throne room and say anything about you on permission only, well, Lord, you, you should see what they did last week. Jesus looks at his father and says, that one is ours. That one is mine. That one is my child. That one is loved by me. And so Jesus is not only seated in perfect authority, but he uses his authority to intercede for us. Our sin bearer intercedes in heaven while he sends his spirit to intercede in our hearts on earth. Now that's why Paul can bring all this to the end of, okay, can anything, shall anything separate us? Now he's dealing with the Charlie Browns among us. Okay, I've told you, no one can be against you. I've told you no charge based on the law can stand. I've told you there's no ongoing condemnation because of the intercession of Christ. Is there anything then? For those of you who suffer with pantophobia, is there anything? In all creation, height, depth, width, trial, tribulation, nakedness, sword, is there anything you can think of or conjure up or could come to you that can possibly 
get you out of the gracious grip of your father. And I love what Paul does here. He turns us to Psalm 44. I love the Psalms. You know, I was talking to someone about this the other day, and they said, you know, I like the Psalms because all the Psalms kind of end, end on a happy note. Even the really hard, bad Psalms, you know, the, the really tough, depressed ones, they all end on a happy note. And I don't usually whip out my pastor card, but I got a quick draw when I do. And I looked at this person lovingly and I said, no, they don't. No, they don't. I mean, the arc of the book, 150 song poems given to Israel for their worship, of course, the arc of the book is this great hope in King Jesus, the Messiah. But don't forget about Psalm 78. Don't forget about the Psalms that actually allow us to worship God in our pantophobic state and there's no Christian bumper sticker at the very end of it. There's just God being the sovereign king, and it's okay to come to him with the deepest, hardest, darkest questions we have. So Paul turns us to Psalm 44, where the Israelites are complaining. And here's their complaint. God, we've been pretty good. We've tried to follow you and honor you and love you, and yet bad things are still happening. Trial and tribulation and nakedness and sword, and it kind of feels like we're separate from you. And it hurts. We need you to intercede. And it's, it's to that that Paul turns us to say, no again. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God that is for you in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Sort of reminds me of that wonderful story in John's gospel, John chapter 8, the story of the woman who's caught in adultery. And in this story, you, you might imagine the painfulness and the sadness and the shame of someone who's caught in the act and literally drugged through the streets as her accusers taunt her and as a crowd gathers. And, you know, I'm sure there wasn't a whole lot of time to, to re-robe oneself. To, you know, and she's being drugged through the streets so often as we are drugged through the streets of our own soul by the accuser. And yet what happens is they, as they grab stones to hurl them at her, to put her to death under the condemnation of the law, Jesus says, okay, but let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. And you can imagine this woman not even lifting her head up, hair soaked in blood and tears, hung in the sand, hearing thunk, thunk, as one stone after another hits the ground. And at the end of this, Jesus says something so beautiful to her, he says, Lift up your head. Where have your accusers gone? That's what it means for us. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And one of the reasons this is so important, to talk about our fears, to talk about feeling separated, is because fear and separation is a reality in this city that we love. You know, I really love Santa Fe, but as we all know, because you drive and live here, there's a lot of challenges in our town. There's a lot of issues of justice and reconciliation. There's a lot of ways in which the gospel in Romans can really help us. Because the whole point of you are not separated from God's love is now go out and find the people around you who have these same questions. If all four answers are given to you in Christ, now go find those who have these four questions 
and bring them Christ. Go to those who are broken and wounded. Go to those who feel condemned and alone. Go to those who feel accused and assailed. Go to those who are helpless and hopeless and bring them this, the only answer that can save. Because we can whip ourselves and beat our puppets and burn them to the ground and nothing changes. This is the only thing. This is the only thing that can help us. This simple truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's pray. So Father, we ask that you would make this real to us. Not the gospel ABCs, but A to Z. And help us to preach this gospel to ourselves. And help us to have eyes to see and ears that are open to those who we love, our neighbors. They're not projects, Lord, we know that. As we were not a project for you. You have loved us. We can love others. We we can seek those who have questions. And we can listen. We can do a lot more listening than we do talking. And we can listen in our own in our own needs and where you've made your power perfect in our weakness. And we can offer the hope of the one who answers these questions, all the fears included, that nothing can separate us from your love because of all that has been done in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.